please. Shish kebab. <laughs> All right. Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor Live Sessions. I had a little bit of electronic trouble this morning on one of my sessions, but it seemed to have worked out good. I was talking about the mysteries and uh, some of the incredible connections. I was kind of doing a free association on uh, various mysteries. The storm that knocked my interview out with Cheryl Bruno last night, I got thinking about storms and lightning and all of that. And so I did a podcast and I now have uh, a guest, a master Mason, whom I have known for a long time. I will uh, turn the time over to him to give us an introduction of who he is, this mystery guest. And we are going to be talking about the book on Freemasonry and Mormonism, Method Infinite from his point of view. I've had three or four different interviews with different points of view. And so I'm bringing in yet another one because this text, I believe, is the singular most significant text to be published in within the last uh, 200 years on this topic of Freemasonry and Mormonism. So, okay, my special guest, who are you? And let's get this show on the road. <laughs> Okay, so um, I actually go by the name uh, or by the handle pseudonym um, online of George Miller. Um, I uh, the I, I actually became a um, a Mason um, when I was at grad school at Vanderbilt, built where I got my PhD in cell and developmental biology. Um, became very interested in Freemasonry actually because. Uh, me and uh, and uh, the backyard professor actually were both on the Mormon Mystics board, and we all both became friends with Joe. And Joe, uh, it, in many of the same ways as uh, with Carrie, I uh, became interested in Masonic as well as esoteric topics uh, to my interaction with Joe Steve Swift. Became a uh, master Mason in Nashville, and then uh, moved to Ann Arbor, where I did a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and it was there that I had the pleasure of serving as uh, the worshipful master of Ann Arbor Fraternity Lodge Number Two Sixty Two. And then uh, have continued to be very, very interested in the topic of Mormon and Masonry. Um, over the years, I've been interviewed a number of times on uh, podcasts. Uh, I was interviewed by uh, John Larson um, for a multi, I think it was five episodes on Mormon expressions um, that we did on the connections between Mormons and Masonry. Um, I was also on a podcast with um, the Mormon... Ex well, it wasn't a Mormon Expressions, um, Mormon Matters podcast, where I actually got oh, to yeah. uh, be on with Joe Steve Swick, um, and we discussed all matters Mormon and Masonry, as well as I was on the uh, podcast with, um, what was it, the uh, Feminist Mormon Housewives, in which uh, we talked about um, the connections between Mormonism and the Relief Society, and how uh, Nauvoo, in Nauvoo, they were actually running 
um, uh, Mormon, uh, sorry, Masonic female rips um, in Nauvoo. Ah, okay, okay. So you've been around the internet block. <laughs> yes, I have. So to speak. Ah, oh, that's nice. Very good, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on my show, George, because we've talked a little bit on the phone about this, this incredible uh, exposition. I'm not going to call it an expose, but it is a great exposition on the, what I can only say is, for the first time at least now, the, the much more complete, comprehensive involvement in the Smith family with Freemasonry, even before Mormonism was a twinkle in Joseph Smith's eye. Freemasonry was occurring, yeah. And so uh, I, I thought that was one of the more interesting developments in this book is it starts off from the very start even before Joseph Smith was born into the Masonic influence. Of course, you have the, uh, it came up from the grandfather and then the brothers of Joseph Smith's father being Masons. And then, of course, his father being very interested in making sure Joseph Smith was raised accurately because of his prophetic birth being birthed with that call over his face, that veil like ancient Noah and Enoch and Moses had in the legends. And I thought that was remarkably interesting. How did you view that? What, what did you think of that? that and, and, and I think you've actually hit on a point that is absolutely essential for this book. Um, it's been interesting over the years as I have talked to people um, and uh, that the first subject that what people immediately want to jump to is what is the connection between Mormonism or Masonry and the temple endowment? And I think one of the things that it is so easy to miss if you just kind of assume you understand what is in Method Infinite, once you really read it, you realize that that is not the interesting point. That is not what this book is about. Um, it really is the idea that Joseph Smith is interested, Joseph Smith Jr. is born into a Masonic family. And as Nick likes to say, uh, Nicholas, uh, Dr. Nick Lutersky likes to say, it, Joseph Smith is involved with Freemasonry from cradle to grave. Yeah. And so this totally upends really a huge amount of Mormon scholarship, which tries to focus in on just masonry appearing uh, as, a, as a brand new thing in 1842 um, in Nauvoo. It's not that. It is literally something that is Joseph Smith is incorporating from, uh, as you said, from his birth and, and throughout his entire corpus of religious building. Yeah, yeah, and and it it was it was not kind of a hit and miss sort of. Well, it was emphasized during his teenage years, and then it kind of waned, and then it waxed again, and then it waned again. 
it was pretty much my impression from this book now. I'm going through it the second time. And so far, everyone I've talked to has said, my impression is this is the steady aspect, the only, and I might exaggerate here a bit. I don't know. You can correct me if you think I am overdoing this part, but the the steady ground in the life of Joseph Smith was Freemasonry as sure as it was the principle of revelation. And my supposition would be that might be part of what makes the Mormon scholars nervous because they want this to be heavenly and divine without recognizing Joseph Smith already had that angle with the Freemason legends of the patriarchs and all the way through the Solomon Temple, etc. It already was divine and revelatory in his mind. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I would very much uh, agree with you. Um, one of your previous, was it, did you, was it Vince that you had on? Who? Uh, Doug. You had a Vincent, Doug Vincent, yeah, Doug Vincent, one of my one of my buddies, and I think he's here today. He should be. He will be shortly if he's not. So, but yeah, uh huh. So I think Vincent actually uh, hit it on the head, and it was interesting to hear him verbalize this after reading uh -huh. um, Method Infinite, because uh, you you brought up this point of masonry is one of those conceptual frameworks that grounds all of joseph smith's uh develop uh you know religious developments it is one of those things that seems to be like underlying it is the 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 foundation um the cornerstone to speak masonically of uh much of what he does but denson also pointed out that there really kind of is almost a a threefold triangulation that of what he is continuously thinking about. And that is that he is thinking about magic, masonry, and uh, scripture, right? And it is, it is in the unique way in which he combines those three things. Um, I often refer to the idea that in order to understand Mormonism, you have to be looking through the magical Masonic lens. And if you're not looking through that Masonic magical lens, that in fact, you only see a blurry picture of what Joseph Smith is doing. And I think you're right. A, a lot of the historians um, are going to be uh, somewhat hesitant to adopt this type of view um, because, you know, it, it is difficult for them to grasp Joseph because it is a lens that is not one through which we are used to look looking through. Yeah. And, and, and the, uh, the second prong here, which is so remarkable now is this isn't just the, this isn't just the Mormon background. We're talking the American background. And I know we like the idea. Well, look, we had the we have the scientist Benjamin Franklin, and we have that great moral leader George Washington, and we have the incredible 
analysis of a Thomas Paine, the age of reason. We are enlightened. There's no way in hell America was magical thinking. And yet now we realize this isn't just about Mormonism. This is the national experience. Because Joseph Smith isn't the only kid out there looking for Captain Kidd's treasure or finding seer stones, and amazingly enough, even having only his unique first vision, a lot of other folks are also experiencing all of this as Americans. I thought that was a really remarkable idea. <laughs> well, and, and I think you're, you're exactly right, and I think that's where, in some ways, Mormon scholarship, there are definitely people who do this better than others. Um, sure. But, you know, Mormonism is not something that should be studied in isolation of that's what I'm trying larger to get to. historical context. That's what um, I'm trying to get things that, Go ahead. Well, I was just, I saw, I'm sorry. I, I'm just saying, yes, that is what I was getting to. Yeah. You, you carry on. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, and, and for those that are interested, um, there are a couple of books uh, that I would highly recommend your readers read. Hold on, um, hold on, hold on. Let me get my pen. I want to write okay. this down too. Um, okay, go so, ahead. Uh, and, and, you know, actually uh, Method Infinite addresses these books. Um, one of these is Revolutionary uh, Brotherhood by Bullock. Um, and in it, he actually traces this early period of Masonic activity. Um, and it's just a phenomenal book. Well, um, what's I the author's, how do you spell the author's name? Bullock, B-U? Bullock, B-U-L-L-O-C-K. Oh, just like it sounds. Um, okay. All right. Just making sure. And that is an offshoot of that um, was another book that was published a little bit more recently. And I believe it goes by the title of uh, a, Reli a Religion on Which All Men Can Agree. And it is a book that actually specifically looks at the religiosity of Freemasonry during this period and how Protestants, um, and, and then it expands its view to, to women and African-Americans, et cetera, and how religiously they interacted in positive ways and built upon Masonic ideas. And it's that type of, of study of Mormonism that has to happen in the context of these larger movements. Um, I've also been uh, just recently reading, uh, and although this is a little bit later than Joseph Smith, right, you have the spiritualist movement that actually uh, takes hold and, and really comes out of literally right around Fayette um, in the 40s and, and you know, in, in after Joseph Smith leaves mm -hmm. um, and takes root amongst, amongst the universalists and, and is very, oh. very strong in Vermont. And I think that understanding these larger flows of what is going on with these movements helps us put Joseph Smith into perspective and kind of figure out what the, the milieu, the zeitgeist that was going on in that region and helps us understand these kind of early Mormon origins in a much more fuller and complete extent. Huh, huh. Who is the author of that A Religion Upon Which All Men Can Agree? 
Um, give me just a second. Uh, David G. Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T. And like I said, uh, Methodism actually uh, references that. Yeah, he, yeah, it does. The name looks familiar. Okay, good. Yeah, I just wanted to double check for my audience sake as well, because uh, any books you recommend, I've learned through the years, just like Joe Swick, you best be getting because this is quality material. So I will pass that on to my audience. You're being given a gift here of recommendations. So as you can, uh, feel free to indulge because it just helps us all broaden out just a little bit more. We're all trying to bloom like the desert and the rose or the, how did, how does that scripture go, George? Bl I don't know, but you're making me think of uh, the rose of Sharon. Yes. The uh, rose of Sharon. Of course, occasionally yeah. will appear in Masonic ceremony. Yeah. And then the scripture, the desert will blossom. And all that. Blossom yeah. like a rose. Yeah, blossom yeah. is a rose. Isn't that interesting, though? Think about that in a way. <laughs> Perhaps this is why George Oliver in his antiquities was emphasizing the uh, the biblical patriarch's connection with masonry because the desert shall blossom as a rose. I mean, wow, that's pretty interesting mm -hmm. imagery, isn't it? <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not just ancient Israelite imagery there's talking there, or is it? Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought along those lines. I haven't either. It just came into my head. <laughs> so uh, what, what aspect have you found in Method Infinite that you would say is, is valuable enough that you could recommend the book to people based on that issue or is that even a fair question i don't know no I'll, no I, I think that's a fair question oh, okay um, let me kind of build off of um what dr nicola tursky uh talked about in your earlier interview good um one of the things he emphasized was that uh for the most part um mo before method infinite um although there are some exceptions and in fact uh method infinite goes into these in chapter one um, for the most part, uh, the Mormon-Masonic connection had largely been explored um, by um, Freemasons in Utah who were largely trying to justify um, the ban of Mormons in Utah from joining Freemasonry in Utah. And so they, they really did write from a polemical point of view and, yeah. and one in which they really didn't quite understand the, the especially early Mormon um, view because they were exposed to the Brighamite branch of the church. Um, and, you know, there are definitely developments um, and things that happen in the Brighamite branch that, you know, were not the mainstream, you know, that were not there um, or at least emphasized in these early origins. The other group, of course, that would tend to write about the Mormon Masonic connection were, were these um, more Mormon polemicists who wanted to, uh, for the most part, although some of them early Mormon uh, polemicists actually tried to do the opposite and basically say that Mormonism was Masonic. Um, that very quickly changed. Yeah, that and flipped. they tried to distance themselves from the Mormon Masonic connection as 
far as they possibly could. And so uh, you get uh, books like um, Gilbert uh, W. Scharf's The Mormons and the Masons. Um, you get um, Matthew W. Brown's Exploring the Connections Between Mormons and Masons. And of course, you know, like with Brown's book, uh, his major emphasis is actually to do the exact opposite. He wants to do nothing more than to sever any connections that, that he could possibly see. And so uh, these are largely the works we got. And we did get a few Mormons um, who were willing to begin to interface these uh the, the the actual connections, but they, as Nick mentioned, suffered um, horrendously from the fact that they did not understand the Masonic content. Um, yeah. I know I watched right. for years uh, where uh, Joe Swick would actually get in discussions um, with, about the Mormon Masonic connections. Those were fun times, says, weren't they? <laughs> what'd you say i say those were fun times weren't they oh they really <laughs> really were and he would just argue with peterson and hamlet yeah and they just didn't get it um you know they would say well for example they would say there is no heavenly ascent in masonry and all of a sudden Joe would jump in and he would actually just show them completely in ritual exactly where it was and mm -hmm. explain everything that was going on. And their response was, well, that's interpretation of the ritual. It's not the ritual itself, which is just ludicrous. And they're, um, and they're not like Masons. You and you who've been through the ritual, you yeah. know that you ritual is there to be interpreted yeah. and sitting through the ritual is so much different than um, just reading about it in an in a expose. Yeah, yeah, very well said, very well. Uh, another one that actually did jump in um, was Nick Latursky, Dr. Latursky. Now, the, the difference in uh, style made for different types, kinds of conversations uh, back in the in the early days of the internet, because Dr. Latursky took no prisoners. He was, he, he was just, he was such a straight arrow that he would pierce the heart and it would end the discussion. He would not tolerate any sort of shenanigan. Joe was appeared to me anyway, to be, if I can describe it this way, more plastic in uh, letting a, polemicist or an apologist or a Mormon leader have their say to a point. And then Joe would, for instance, he would bring in the idea, okay, that's how you're defining this, which is not invalid, but the Masonic view also incorporates this, which is also not invalid. And so with the extra elaboration of the word and the meaning of the word uh it expands the definition to where true it's not an exact connection but it is still a connection there and i really enjoyed how how joe would uh and i'm not trying to insult dr latursky because I took Dr. Lektursky's approach to a whole new level 
when I just, what I would do is if someone began to argue with me and all that, I would just simply double up my fist, <clears throat> hit them right on the nose, you know. Um, and that was the wrong approach. I did not get any good discussion because of that. But Joe did, and it elevated the uh, the awareness of the connections between Freemasonry. And the reason I'm elaborating on what you said is because I want to bring it back to your discussion you had that I just recently reread, and this was like a decade ago. I might be putting you on the hot seat here. Sorry. However, <laughs> the discussion you had with Will Scriver, and it was, uh, who were you? Oh, it was you and Kevin Graham who was talking about the Masonic information. I believe it was with Will Scriver, where you guys kind of tag-teamed him. Graham was taking the Egyptian hieroglyphic stuff, and you were taking the Masonic stuff, and you were both showing how the, the so-called new apologetic that Scriver and Dan Peterson was trying to do with the interpreter just did not pan out at all. He presented it fair about a decade ago. I was just talking to Dan Vogel last night, and he was telling me he was watching that on his Masonic cipher interpretation. So well, you were you just, were doing it too. So what I'm trying to say is you don't have to hide behind a, a false sense of humility. You have been right involved with this yourself. So. Well, and, and I think, so let's use that um, discussion um, that happened between, with uh, Kevin Graham, me, and Will Schreiber, and some others on the board. Uh -huh. um, because I think it actually elaborates on uh, Dr. Letursky's um, discussion of you know what is the problem when uh, those that are not fully familiar with what's going on with masonry try to get into a discussion of Masonic uh, context. Um, so uh, one of the things that uh, Will Shriver at the time was doing was analyzing um, the Book of Abraham, and uh, his and and. I, I have to give Shriver some props. I like what he was doing, and and for some, for, to some extent, I'd actually love to see his actual primary data. Um, but what he was doing was looking at how the Book of Abraham was related to the um, hieroglyphs, and one of the things that he did was he came across this idea that maybe there that some of the hieroglyphs that appear in the Egyptian alphabet and the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language that maybe they were actually being influenced by uh, Masonic ciphers. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing here is when I actually saw. Um, Will Shriver actually uh, suggests this. It made me very, very nervous because he actually expressed this and, and, and suggested this a little bit before his presentation because I had actually been working on um, some work that actually did, in fact, ground um, the uh, not the Egyptian language material, but actually uh, Joseph's Adamic work. Um, in, also, also uh, in the, the papyri. Royal Arch Cipher and a yeah. similar cipher um, yeah. that uh, is found in the Magus called the Echabakar. Um, and so I was really nervous that Schreiber was suggesting that there were these 
connections uh, to uh, Masonic Cipher because I had found the same thing. But the, the sad thing is because he was not familiar with the entire context, he missed three quarters of the story that was there, the, the actual yeah. connection. And then he started looking through all of these Masonic ciphers that he had found in um, some of the uh, Rosicrucian as well as in the Scottish Rite um, Scottish yeah. Rite, and he started drawing parallels to those and those that were in the Egyptian alphabet and the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. The problem was, because he did not know the Masonic material, that he did not know that, in fact, the ciphers that he was drawing from in the um, from the Scottish Rite and from the Rosicrucian degrees did not exist and were not known in the 1830s and 40s, that they were actually the invention and and the development of uh, ciphers that had been created by um, Albert, Albert Pike and implemented in his Scottish Rite system. And so, you know, it is this type of problem that exists when when too many of the Mormon scholars have tried to make the connections and, and try to draw out what is going on with yeah. the Mormon Masonic connection is they don't know their masonry. Now, and now let's when they do try to do their, their the connections, they horrendously fail because what they tend to do is rely on material but is not contemporary with Joseph. And in order to understand masonry at the time and what Joseph Smith was doing with it, you have to be reading the Masonic scholars that are writing and interpreting the ritual at the time that Joseph Smith is working on the similar materials. And as Dr. Nickel Tursky mentioned, he had just bought um, an 1823 version of Antiquities of Masonry by George Oliver. What a which find. Is a phenomenal work. And yeah. uh, my own research has suggested that um, Joseph Smith and Oliver definitely had that volume and were using it in their, in their scriptural elaboration and we're going to be doing some work on that angle together i do believe that'll we be that'll are, be some fun um, now now to be fair to be fair to the mormon scholars uh and and truly i think intuitively some of us understand this uh there may be some who don't so i i'd just like to throw this out there see if it sticks on the wall through the through the years however the church itself I'll say within my lifetime, the last 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, whatever, um, they have not exactly been encouraging to get that Masonic knowledge directly. So these scholars, these apologists who are trying to, they imagine they are actually defending Mormonism, but in the process they are refuting Joseph Smith, and they're unaware of that, is in the defense of Mormonism, they're only looking at the head side of the coin without looking at the tail side of the coin because the church itself 
did not do a lot to encourage them to. The joining of the church was pretty difficult in in uh, in the early 1900s, all the way up till after Mervyn Hogan died, and he kind of helped get it going. Nowadays, it's not such a dumb thing or a bad thing or an evil thing or an apostate thing to also become a Mason. But even during my lifetime, uh, it was not overly encouraged. So we, we can kind of give them a little leeway there, don't you think? Somewhat in that regard. But I do think so. And, and I yeah. think this is actually one of the problems I've seen. So there's been a couple of Mormons who are also Masons who have tried to jump into this uh, milieu and start discussing it. Um, and one of the problems they've actually run into is they are trying to interpret um, Joseph Smith's connection with Masonry in the context of the Masonry that they've experienced in, you know, the late 1900s, early 2000s, right? Right. Um, so Good in point. order to really understand what's going on, you can't just become a Mason, though it is extremely helpful. It's not necessary. Um, I mean, I, I've had right. long, long, long conversations with Cheryl. Um, and Cheryl gets Masonic ritual, despite the fact that she's not personally been through it. Um, another scholar that I, I chat with very, very commonly is Don Bradley. And he is oh, also yeah. one that gets it. Um, he just yeah. almost intuitively uh, can capture what is the important points in Masonic ritual. Um, yeah. And I think that's yeah. because both of them have really come to understand Joseph and how he thinks. And as such, since they are thinking like Joseph does, they also get the Masonic connections. And, and yeah. I think you're, you're right. Um, I think we do have to give um, these scholars some, some leeway um, because, you know, how would they know? Um, if right. they have not experienced yeah. these things. Yeah, they, they couldn't. So they couldn't. Yeah. You. Yeah. And, and the, uh, now that being said, we are at a, I, I would propose we are at a, a new crossroads now with this new book and with some work you are doing and with some other work that you and I could potentially be doing together that the, the flexibility, the giving of the benefit of the doubt begins to get less and less and less now that the further light and knowledge of the method infinite is has arrived. And it's really time, sincerely in a serious note, and I mean church leaders, it is time for the apostles and the first presidency to read this material. It is time for Mormonism in total to come up to date. I hope I'm not asking for too much in that regard, but Nelson is the one that threw the gauntlet down a couple years ago, claiming that all of the critics who quit Mormonism, it's because we're lazy learners. And I'm enjoying throwing that stupid bullshit right back in his face uh, because that was unnecessary. It's not because I didn't know anything about Mormonism as an apologist that I quit being an apologist. I got real, real horrifying news for the leaders of the church. 
it's them, <laughs> right? And I'm not trying to get adversarial here. I, I The last thing I want is this Freemasonry and Mormonism to remain adversarial. It never had to be in the first place. Okay, we have gone through the adversarial phase. Let's turn a corner here and get to a phase to where we are all now again seeking the light and knowledge that Father promised and working better from the dark to the light together as the total heritage. That would be my proposal and hope. Well, and, and let me build on that. Okay, um, please. Do. In, in, in many ways, kind of a, a shared experience that I think both you and I had. Um, one of the things on the old Mormon mystics board that we both inhabited, um, and of course, Nick Letursky inhabited and Joe Swick inhabited. You know, there were many, many times that, you know, unlike you who got formally involved with apologetics. I I was, you know, a consumer um, instead of a producer of right. apologetics. Mm -hmm. And time and time again, I would come to things that just did not make sense to me in Mormonism. Mm -hmm. um, whether they be uh, theological, whether they be historical, or commonly ritual when it involved the endowment and every single time i went to the apologists i came up and and i i don't like to to bag too much on the apologists there sometimes i do i, I should I, I, <laughs> sometimes it's just too good is, not to <laughs> well and sometimes it's justified right, um right but um i i would come up cold their answers were not satisfactory. And it was largely at those times when I could not get a good answer that I would jump onto the Mormon mystics board and I would dash out, Joe Steve Swick, I don't get this. Can you explain? And it was always interesting to interact with Joe because his answers were always satisfactory and his answers would come either with a mystical bent with a western mystery mystery tradition bent or from a cabalistic bent or very commonly from a masonic bent mm -hmm. and i think one of the reasons why he was drawn to many of those you know mystical bents was his involvement in Freemasonry. It taught him how to think symbolically um, wow. and metaphorically and to try to mystically scale Jake, Jacob's ladder. And his answers always rung true. And it's really those things that actually he drew me in to study these things more because Joe seemed to always give me satisfactory answers that not only made my brain tingle, but mm. in my heart felt right. And so one of the things you mentioned is it's so nice to finally get Method Infinite out because yeah. I'm excited for um, a, a, a normal Mormon to be able to have access to this information and to 
be able to begin to open that door to the connections between Mormonism and Masonry, because my feeling is that has helped me really understand things. And so I'm so happy for, you know, Nick Letursky's original, um, you know, research that he did. And then Joe's uh, amazing ideas, and especially Cheryl for actually being able to bring this home and get it written and get it out. Um, yeah. Because it is great just to have this in the ethereal plane. But uh, as as the mystical phrase goes, as above, so below, it's no good if it's only above only and above. it never comes to grounding. And I'm so proud and happy for Cheryl who, who finally got this and did the hard work of bringing this to print so that the the normal Mormon can come at this and, yeah. and view their largely unapologetic, unpolemical, historical analysis with an eye that understands both traditions and can enrich both. Yeah, and and the other real beautiful thing about this book, uh, not now I do I do probably a little bit more reading than the normal uh, person in in life. This text can really honestly be read by a regular normal person, and that's what really amazed me. Because the crazy thing is, this is the miracle of the book is that we're talking about two separate, secret, occult, hidden, mystery traditions, Mormonism and Freemasonry. And the Mormons are not going to tell you diddly spit about the temple. And the Freemasons are going to tell you diddly spit about their ritual. And yet, the, this secrecy was interconnected, intertwined, and this book makes it understandable. And you actually do understand in a generalized outline base the point of the mysteries that these systems present. That is a miraculous pullover, man. Cheryl and Joe and Dr. Letursky promised, and then they turned around and delivered, man. Uh, I, and, and the nice thing is, hey, Cheryl has uh, Cheryl has uh, basically hinted to me. Um, we'll probably talk about this more tonight, too. I'm going to finish the interview with her, hopefully. Uh, she's hinted that there is some follow-ups that's going to... Well, Dr. Letursky did tell me that, too. He's thinking more along the line of articles in various uh, the news. Uh, I believe Cheryl is looking more at a book-type format. So we'll see. So it's exciting. This may not be the end of this journey at all, but the very beginning, which it's about time. I'm grateful I'm alive that we can take this journey together now. So yeah, baby. Okay. Let's get specific well, here. So, so let's let's hit two more things before we, we stop there. Sure. Um, one of the things in, in talking to Cheryl, you uh -huh. know, um, one of the things that is the hope of Joe, Nick, and Cheryl is that um, this book will 
will sit as a stepping stone for more research. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things you've been emphasizing is is the breadth. The breadth of this book, you know, covers Joseph's entire life, and there are things that are covered in that book in a paragraph or two that really deserve a full paper. Yes. And you know, and and so their hope is that the book will excite Mormon scholars to continue the investigation and to expand on what is there. And that would be also my hope. Um, Me too. That would happen. It will. Yeah, it will. I think, I think, I think that is the direction that once we're all kind of, this book's going to help put us all on the same page. And, And once we're to that point, we'll all be able to come together and say, well, you know, uh, wouldn't it be fun to kind of spread this out a little more and take this out further and let's unravel this thread all the way out on this particular item. And uh, Masons and Mormons can kind of put put pen to paper together at the same desk and put together research and papers. I suspect that day will come uh, much sooner than we were ever afraid to believe it would. One One angle that I would say one person I can say seeing helping this happen is going to be Don Bradley. Uh, He will Mm -hmm. be in the thick of this and I'm going to be right there with him. And you also, as well as Nick, uh, Dr. Letursky and Cheryl's not going to quiet down. She's uh, you know, she's, she's got her fingers healed now. She's ready to roll again. (laughs) Well, and and, you know, uh, actually towards the end of the, the process, me and Cheryl started sitting down. Um, for some weekly uh, Sunday scripture study. And oh, fun. Uh, one of the things we were actually doing is working our way through the book of Abraham um, uh-huh. and looking at the Masonic connections. Um, and she's her theory, um, which I'm, I'm assuming she's going to talk a little bit about with you she um, will. in part two, um, is absolutely correct. Um, oh, because cool. I found evidence for it um, that she didn't know about. Oh, um, nice. And nice. so this idea of what was going on with the book of Abraham, uh, she's right. She's 100% right. Um, now, I, I do want to, I'm, I'm going to jump off on, on a second point here. One of the things that you mentioned was that, um, you know, we are dealing with two esoteric occult traditions and the the one of the things that i think method infinite is able to do um is it approaches both traditions with the eyes of of a historian um you've also in the past um discussed the work of um de la joyas right um masonic scholars for years have dealt, Masonic historians for years have dealt with this issue of how do you deal with an occult tradition and still write something? And the answer is you talk about it using historical sources and talk about it using exposés. And in the Masonic historical tradition there is nothing historians in 
Masonic historians have been doing this for generations, where they will use exposés to discuss the implications and the interpretations and the development of ritual. Mm -hmm. And of course, Mormon historians themselves have been doing the same thing. Probably the most uh, forward in this would be somebody like Debbie S. Anderson's mm -hmm. um, book, uh, I should say series of books, um, yeah. where he analyzes um, Mormon uh, endowment ritual and uh, puts in front of the historical audience those things and does analysis. I think much of the discussion is largely hampered by the unwillingness of historians to talk like historians. Hmm. That might be worth, uh, that might be worth trying to uh, break into the public sector a little bit. Well, that's what Devery is doing. Uh, yeah. He's done some magnificent work and uh, David John Berger has also been kind of, uh, looking into that direction mm -hmm. with the with the rituals and stuff, and uh, Lance Owens has been doing that m more with the Kabbalah than anything. And then you've got Brooke with the Hermetic materials. Uh, although I'm not so sure that connection is as strong with Joseph Smith as the Kabbalistic one. But then I read that Albert Pike believed the at least the symbolisms of Masonry did occur from the hermetic angle so it's all it's very interesting to see how and and this kind of plays into the lap of the apologist somewhat it's interesting the number of ancient uh mystery occult which means hidden not evil the word did not mean evil it means something hidden something kept in the bosom Hence a mystery, right? So the occultist uh, aspect of Hermeticism. You got Nibley, the message of the Joseph Smith papyri, sharing the Egyptian ritual, which I am told from a student from BYU-Idaho uh, that that is how the religion teachers up there teach the authenticity of the temple endowment. They don't mention a thing about masonry and they go straight to Hugh Nibley's message of the Joseph Smith papyri and they discuss it from that angle giving the impression that Joseph Smith gave us that endowment from a vacuum but through the revelation from heaven that is the image that is the that is the culture and context I was raised with and that I believed and that I am now discovering is at best incomplete approach. And that's why this method infinite probably has me so doggone excited. I mean, I'm the biggest motor mouth on all of the internet right now on this book. I've already produced almost a dozen videos on this stuff and it's only been out a week and a half. Some people still don't even have their copy. I talked to Dan Vogel last night and asked him to come on the show today. And he said, Carrie, I would love to come on the show, but I don't even have the book yet. I'm going, what? I've already, I'm almost twice through it. And he goes, yeah, I don't have the book yet. He said, now, once I get it and read it, I'll be happy to come and talk to you about it. His interest, of course, is in the Book of Mormon as an anti-Masonic book. So he's going to critique 
Method Infinite from that angle, I'm more than sure. But, so anyway, now I'm just ratting and raving, and we're here to listen to you, not me. But uh, fun conversation oh, to have with you as always. But let, let me jump off on a point that you just brought up, right? Okay. Um, you know, the I, I think we both at the time shared a a admiration um, for the works of Hugh Nibley. And, you know, he had a gift for drawing out the parallels, and I use that phrasing very carefully, yes. um, drawing out the parallels between these ancient um, mystery traditions um, and uh, the and Mormonism. And, yeah. I, and you mentioned, you know, in some ways that can kind of fall into the apologist camp. Um, I, I was just in, in working on a, a chapter, um, for, uh, some, some work I'm doing as a kind of a follow-up, um, to Method Infinite. Can you see the screen? Um, Can you see the screen? George? I cannot. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm holding up, uh, Nibley's message of the Joseph Smith Papri, the Egyptian parallel off one of the temple walls of the five points of fellowship. Mm -hmm. They've definitely got and, that and, embrace and idea thing. So that, that was yeah. one way why why people go to the ancient materials instead because they don't recognize the Masonic uh, impressions. So I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Keep oh, going. No, no, no good. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that brings up a key point. You know, um, I do think that there are legitimate connections um, between, I, I, I don't yeah. think the apologists are fully off the mark here. Um, I was reading a lot of Quinn recently, mm -hmm. um, rereading early Mormonism and the magic worldview. Uh -huh. And he has a large discussion about, um, what could have been known to Joseph in Joseph Smith's day about the mystery traditions. And, you know, and, and, and his suggestion, of course, is that Joseph was aware of um, the works uh, about the mystery traditions, that those would have been uh, in the zeitgeist and in the, his, the milieu in which he grew up in, and that he would have been made aware of some of those mystery traditions. And therefore, that is the reason for these parallels. Um, right. Sadly enough, what Quinn largely misses, and, which is, is kind of sad, is that many of the books that he brings up are just not the types of books I see Joseph Smith reading. Um, instead, they're the type of books that would have been written, writ, read and devoured and analyzed by an Anglican priest in England who had access to a huge religious library, okay? Yeah. That is the type of person that would have read the works that Quinn is referring to. Yeah. Now, I phrased that very carefully because one of those Anglican priests who was it is George Oliver who wrote <laughs> oh, Antiquities of Freemasonry <laughs> and wrote ex 
extensively about the mysteries. And so what is largely missed by Quinn is the fact that the most readily available information about the mystery traditions that Joseph would have had access to are actually Masonic materials. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the books that he quotes as one of the four, okay, uh -huh. um, that Joseph probably had access to, had half of the book is devoted to the mysteries of Freemasonry, drawing parallels between the ancient mysteries and Masonry. Um, oh. And so, you know, yeah. he, he, did Joseph probably have access and understanding of these mystery traditions? Yes, but it did not come, but it, it had a source, and that source was Masonry, and Joseph viewed those mystery traditions through the lens of magic and Masonry because that was his now, now, the other angle that I think circumstantially really adds solidity to your position, and this just now came into my head, uh, I probably said something similar to this, but the way it just came into my head is really, I got to say this quick before I forget what I'm thinking. Maybe Joseph Smith did not himself travel. Maybe Joseph Smith himself did not get to some of those big cities in the East and their libraries. But how many of the Mormon brethren were out there spreading the word? How many of them were doing, for instance, as an example, the Council of the 50, and when Joseph Smith began the campaign for the presidency of the United States of America, he had 50 gentlemen traveling all over the eastern seaboard, up in several different states. Why wouldn't that have happened earlier when they were missionaries? We know, in fact, it did. So if Joseph Smith did not directly have access to the information, himself checking out the book physically with his own hand, and not on papyri, <laughs> sorry, couldn't resist, then some of the other brethren could easily have brought that material back to him. Did he not, in the middle of translating the Joseph Smith papyri itself, or I should call it the Egyptian papyri, from his perspective, did he not send Oliver Cowdery away in November, right in the process of translating the Egyptian, to go do what? Grab the Hebrew grammars and the Hebrew texts and find a Hebrew teacher. And he did! The record and, says and Oliver actually, went, so that's how he could go. I'm going to push back against you because you actually got your timeline a little bit wrong. I could, okay. yes. I could. Um, so one of the things, uh, I'm going to push back against the first part, right? Sure. Um, but I, I think you you also rehandled this anyways, right? Um, it doesn't make sense for them to be out campaigning and bring stuff back for Joseph. Because by then, Joseph oh no, I was just right? using that as an example. Well, they were your, your point is them on their missionary trips, okay? Um, in fact, one of the things, one of the one, I've been working a lot with antiquities of Freemasonry, mm -hmm. and one of the things I've been doing is tracking George Oliver's sources, 
where, what are his sources? What is he drawing? Oh, oh, nice. And, um, you know, one of the things that he actually draws heavily from are the exact books that Quinn brings up about the mystery tradition. Okay. Okay. Um, Another one that he uh, heavily draws from, although he never attributes it. I, I say that I think he's drawing from this because I've just found so many parallels is that he is likely drawing from, Oh, you're going to love this. Um, he's actually drawing from, um, Oh, uh, commentary, uh, Clark's commentary on the scriptures. Oh, he's also calling on Josephus, Adam Clark and Josephus together. Oh, what a find, what a find. Um, but uh, the reason I bring this up is actually Oliver was out collecting these books and gets back in October, um, right about the time that they are they are working on this stuff. And as you have suggested, what, what did I say? Days, November? What did I say? November? November. He's he's oh, not right. sent out then. He comes back with stuff then. Oh, oh, right. all right. And all right, they all right. restart translating in October. A mere detail, mere trivia. Um, and so <laughs> he's kidding. actually got, not, and, and my own research has suggested, although it's definitely not nailed down 100%, that uh, as he's sent out to get the Hebrew books, uh-huh. he also is sent out as well. One of the things he brings back, of course, is Flavius Josephus' history uh antiquity of the jews right and so um and this is a shared source that both george oliver and joseph smith um have access to but they don't really gain access to that until october when oliver returns okay Um, Uh Uh and so um yeah i mean i i your your point here is though that there were people around Joseph that had access to all of these things. And I think one that has been heavily underplayed, right, Mm -hmm. is Oliver Cowdery. I know that in talking to Cheryl, one of the things that got dropped from the book, sadly, um, was the research that she did on the masonry amongst the Cowdery family. They were oh. Royal Arch Masons heavily involved in Royal Arch Masonry. And so for Joseph, Oliver was likely a relatively robust source of That's Masonic mythos that is largely ignored. Um, and the other one, of course, that that is actually brought up in the book, right? Is our character W.W. Phelps, who in in Method Infinite is mentioned that he is the third or fourth signer of the Declaration of Independence from Freemasonry. He is assigned to a committee. And that he is like the head, one of the head of this committee whose only goal is to gather up absolutely every masonic expose and ritual and put these all together for the book that would be put published in 1829 which would become light on mason phelps is in charge of gathering ritual 
all of them. All of them. Okay. Man. What a connection. A moment that he did not have hand copies of those himself. Yeah. That he kept. He didn't. That this, this is just not how so, a a printer and a researcher would do it. Yeah. They would have created multiple copies, mm-hmm. and yeah. those would have been in Phelps's records, and he would have had a plethora of detailed Masonic rituals. Mm-hmm. And given his position, he would have been happy to have shared those with Joseph. And so your point that, you know, we cannot overlook Joseph Smith's compatriots as sources of information is 100% correct. It it has to be. It has to be. And as as I have somewhat matured a little better in my studies out of the apologetic mindset into just what the heck was happening. Uh, I really like Dan Vogel's comment. He said, I just want to know what Joseph Smith himself thought. And I go, well, yeah, that makes sense. So, but as I've, as I've kind of changed my approach and yet I still use the same approach, but I'm, I'm reading much further abroad than I did as an apologist. And I honestly thought I was reading fairly abroad on the apologist that concept that um, there is just not a vacuum surrounding Joseph Smith, a shield keeping people and ideas away from him. That's just, I have to put that thinking to rest. And it's a struggle. I'm not kidding. Being a former apologist, you don't just turn that off. Uh, But the more, and, and this Method Infinite is one of those books that has helped me see the value of go ahead and let the vacuum disappear and let's see the real Joseph Smith. The uh, Thomas Riscus Mormonism deconstructed was the one that really jolted me. But that in a way, well, it's a completely different book than this. It is much more polemical, but yet it makes its point. So this, now see Patrick Mason's book, Planted. He is attempting as a, and Terrell Gibbons, I think, falls in line with this, this this so-called new apologetic approach, this new apologetics. Uh, And he's doing this with the book of Abraham. And and, uh, I believe Patrick Mason is doing it more with the focus on the uh, Book of Mormon and the modern prophets and the idea of accept the modern prophets, even though they're normal and human and fallible and all that. This theme that the environment matters has now opened up even, I believe, even to the upper echelons of the church to where they can no longer say, no, we can't make it a vacuum any longer. And perhaps that's part of the reason why the church essays were produced they want to be. They want to give us the impression that they're trying to be more open. That is a good move. I hope through the next coming up years they continue demonstrating that. The Joseph Smith Papers Project has been a tremendous boost to that improved image. 
But now we'll see the, the test with method infinite if they will continue this openness to explore and allow to be explored the sources involving these two esoteric traditions being married early on. We'll see how they do it. We'll see how they do. But I'm going to be at the forefront. You are. I know Cheryl's not going to quiet down. Dr. Latursky is not going to stop. Joe is, is has had a stroke, so he's somewhat on the sideline. But there's many, many Mormon Masons, I'm sure, who are absolutely welcoming this book. I would be surprised if I find any Mormon Masons who don't like this book. I will be quite frankly surprised. And I'll be real curious to see why if they do come across that way. So, yeah, fun stuff. Good well, times ahead for us is what I'm saying. And I think I think Nick's, uh, Dr. Lundaturski's comment was actually apropos. Uh -huh. You know, we you mentioned that, you know, there has been this effort to divorce Joseph from his environment. I think one of the things that we loved about Quinn's work, both you and I, was that it put it into the environment. We began to understand the magical worldview. Yeah. And Method Infinite helps us understand the Masonic point of view. And frankly, I think one of the nice things about having Nick as one of the, the people active in this area is he is also very interested in the magical worldview. And, yeah. you know, the, Nick put it right. You know, if we try to represent Joseph as this child, childish imbecile who has a third grade education and is not intelligent, okay, mm -hmm. that is just a view of Joseph that is, that's the type of view, frankly, that would be represented not by the apologists, but by the antagonists, right? No, Joseph is a very bright individual. Yeah. He is intelligent. He is, as, as Nick said, a master ritualist. The way that he crafts scripture, combining different sources and bringing out new ideas is phenomenal. And, and I would say, and I use this word very carefully, he is inspired. For a religious person, that is an implication that it comes from above, right? For a secular person, it is that he has a very bright mind. And I love that phrasing because I think it is a point on which the secular and the religious scholars of Joseph Smith can have a shared language that is true. And I, I think Nick has grasped this, and although it is no longer his tradition, right? right. That he has recognized that there is something to be admired and a brilliance of Joseph and I would much rather study a brilliant Joseph than an imbecile Joseph. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point. Perhaps I'm just now showing on the screen uh, Waterman's 
edited text. He edited it together, and it was kind of a conference on the profit puzzle. Uh, perhaps, perhaps we can now. This book left me the impression that it was going, it was more of an enigma unsolved. And perhaps we can update this more uh, with with a better historical maturity, I'll put it, uh, with the with the basis of the new information with Quinn and Brooke and and Owens and and now uh, Bruno and Swick and Doctor Lit- all of this. We what we need is another aggregator to see this profit puzzle is dated. A wonderful read. I would strongly encourage people signature books. But we're looking at. Uh, oh come on, where is it? Yeah, 1999. Okay, so it's 23 years old. Perhaps there needs to come into play another attempt at aggregation. Now that we know it wasn't a pure vacuum around Joseph Smith, and it's pretty much understood, truly. I think this has been percolating for two decades into the common Mormon mind. And so now that we have gotten to that moment, perhaps we need... This uh, the method infinite can certainly be a watershed beginning of a new phase where we again attempt to aggregate all of the traditions together to show Mormonism isn't so much a false usurper, it's just simply another expression of the infinite divine mystery that has been with mankind forever since we became homo sapiens. And it is not intending to say you must join a group who believes in the mystery or in the cultural reflection of a particular ritual performed, it is that it is to encourage individuals to be and become part of that mystery through their own introspection and work with others who want to come to the light. Yeah. Somewhat. Freemasons yeah. would argue about that. And in some respects, <laughs> I get I get that Mormons also will argue. I mean, if you don't go through the temple endowment, you can't possibly know what it is. But on the other hand, if you go through it today, you can't know what it was when I went through it. So what yeah. is the actual endowment? Does it take an organization to give us the connection to the mystery I'm beginning to get to the point where I argue no, and that's remarkable to me personally. So that's where I'm at somewhat. What do you think? Well, I, and I think I think one of the things that I had conversations with Joe and I've had conversations with Cheryl on this, as well as some of my Mormon Masonic um, compadres, uh-huh. Mormons who are also Masons, is that what Joseph was trying to do in ritual uh-huh. was he was trying to teach the Mormons how to do what he felt he had already done. 
Mm-hmm. He wanted to give them the experience that he had in the Grove. And as Cheryl has pointed out, that was a Masonic experience. There, there is multiple reasons he didn't share it. Right. Cheryl didn't quite say it, and I think if you would have had a little bit more time with her, I think she would have. It, as she shows in that chapter in the book, it was that the, the first vision was Joseph's Masonic initiation. Initiation, yeah. And I, he did not want one of the reasons he was somewhat tight-lipped about it. I think was sure. twofold. One was that for him it was Masonic, and he was he felt like. He was around, you know, people, mm-hmm. some of which were anti-Masonic. Yeah. And therefore, <laughs> his sharing of a Masonic experience would have rubbed them the wrong way. Right. They would have not understood. Yep. Literally not understood. And not only that, but they would not have understood because they did not think Masonically. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the reasons he probably didn't share it was because he was afraid of those people who were anti-Masons who would not understand or would attack him for the Masonic nature of that experience. And so I think he had to find ways of speaking about it that lessened that Masonic connection. But in addition... He knew his father, he knew his brother, he knew his uncles, he knew Oliver. And he understood that Masonically, ritual, your experience in ritual, is yours. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's the key, right. Yeah. And it's yours, and you are under, to some extent, a Masonic obligation not to share those experiences because they are so personal. And I think what Joseph was trying to do in the endowment was to give them a ritual whereby they might have the experience he had of touching the divine. And I don't think it matters how you touch the divine as long as you do this is a beautiful analogy that I want to turn back to what I was saying earlier today in my video, and it kind of got a little bit messed up, but on the Navajo sand painting on the pollen path on the back cover of Joseph Campbell's The Inner Reaches of Outer Space, I expounded on this quite a bit in my earlier video, but the diff- what you're talking about the difference with me showing this sand painting and explaining its meanings, the footprints, the colors, the sealed off space, the opening up the space, the bird, etc. The difference between seeing the painting and the Navajo initiate actually enters that painting. They work through this painting themselves they become it that's the essence of what you're saying the navajo had the same principle the egyptians had the same principle 
the, uh, that's what the Book of the Dead is all about, is getting into that ritual. And the Mormons have that, the Mason. So there is a, uh, a group aspect to ritual. And so that's something that the individual might have to come to grips with. But there are also individual aspects that the group needs to come to grips with. And both ways need to mesh a little bit better, I would propose. So what else about the book that you really did like? What's one well, of the... I mean, I, we'd actually talked. Um, yeah. Oh, that's right. That's that you right. What I wanted to do was uh, to, because it sounds like with Vincent, and I hope I'm getting Vincent's name right, um, you guys had heavily explored chapter one and two. Yes. Um, and had really kind of given many of the summary states, kind of a summary of those. Right, right, right. But one of the things that we had talked about was going through um, chapter three. A gathering of crows, William Morgan, oh, yeah, masonry, yeah, yeah. and death. Yeah, and so I would love to to go into that. Absolutely, and, start and if off. If you want to uh, discuss, you know, at a later time, maybe like Book of Abra the the chapter on Book of Abraham. Sure. Of course, my favorite chapter in the entire thing is, um, and and understand, uh, I'm still waiting on my book, right, from uh, Amazon. Right. Uh, in fact, I canceled my Amazon order and had ordered it directly from Greg Coford because Very Amazon told me they had no delivery date that they had oh, canceled wow. and they had not gotten it. Yikes. Um, and so all I have, um, and I, I guess I should introduce this, um, my involvement with the, I, I have a, a very, very minor um, involvement with Method Infinite um, yeah. as well. So. Um, Nick, of course, and, and I, I was listening to the Nick interview, and I, I, have full, I have a feeling that when he mentioned other people, interlopers, to some extent, I think that was me. Um, I'm sure there were others. Um, but uh, in that recess after Nick turning back over the work to Joe and Joe entering into the infinite regress of reorganization, um, it became very clear to me that I didn't think the book was ever going to come out. Um, and so uh, I I started, that was about the time that I entered on the internet frontier and began, began interacting because if they weren't going to produce it, gosh darn it, I was going to produce it. Um, and uh, then Cheryl, uh, and so I had actually been beginning to compile chapters, doing my own analysis. Um, and then when Cheryl came on board, I got news from Cheryl that it was finally making progress and that, you know, chapters were being written. And so since Joe was actually the first one that turned me onto this and, and much of my analysis um, has to do with its interaction with uh, Joseph Smith's religious thinking and George Oliver's book, Antiquities of Freemasonry. My feeling was that I was going to draw back and I was not going to produce anything until Cheryl, Joe, and Nick had had a chance to to publish this because right. they were the ones that clued me in on this in the first place. And oh, so, nice. uh -huh. in fact, Cheryl um, 
started sending me book chapters as they had finished them and um, just just wanted my my two cents and and I you know I, I don't feel like I can you know it, it was more you know fine points and stuff um, she would have figured they would have figured it out without me I, I'm not self-aggrandizing here um, oh go ahead brag I, actually, I do brag I do nobody <laughs> believes me when I brag but go ahead brag man well I, no I mean this 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 was Cheryl's baby she brought this into fruition she deserves so much credit yes um absolutely but um she started sending me book chapters so I actually have the chapters um one through four even though I'm waiting for uh my print copy and so chapter three is one of them that i have i actually don't have the uh, i think i have through chapter four or five and that's about it uh -huh. um so um chapter three um is largely about the william morgan affair and there are some amazing um revelations in this um I thought uh, basically what she points out in this chapter is that it would have been complete, that the Milton and Morgan affair was such an important event that there is no way that Joseph could not have known about it. Right. Right. Um, that it was, that, that masonry was in the air and that there were literally all of these meetings and newspaper articles and people Gosh. were walking around town holding these meetings and literally and in some ways mockingly demonstrating masonic rituals in the street and constantly arguing against each other yeah and constantly yeah, yeah, arguing against each other there's no way um, he could not have known about it. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that's an important point in this chapter that really kind of also got my attention. I said, wow, you know, I, I, I had heard of the William Morgan affair. And at that time I did not hear that Joseph Smith eventually married Morgan's widow as a plural wife. I didn't know that until just a few years ago, believe it or not. And it just blew me away. Wow. When I finally got around to reading Todd Compton's in sacred loneliness, I'm going, Holy Toledo, man. So, but yeah, that was, that was a big there's point. There's actually more to that story. Oh, sure. Of, there's a huge amount of the story that has not yet been revealed. Um, that will be up to you, my brother. Amazing work on that. That will be up to uh, you, my brother. <laughs> I actually, got this. Don Badley's got um, oh, yeah, yeah. information about that. Yeah, Don Badley. I don't Bradley. want to say anything more than that. It's all um, good. It's all good. Um, but one of the things that I loved about that chapter is it finishes off, and, and you're exactly right. That there's a reason why Joseph is drawn to. Lucinda, Morgan, Harris, to be Smith. Yeah. Right? There's a yeah. reason he's drawn to her. Um, yeah. And it's not an accident that she ends up as one of his plural wives. No. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a very complicated, <laughs> whenever we get into polygamy, it's complicated. Anything, yeah. It's an interesting yep. story. 
<laughs> but I think one of the things that I love is at the, that chapter ends by discussing Joseph Nassinda and that he gives Lucinda a patriarchal blessing. Yeah. And that in that patriarchal blessing, he says, your husband is in the celestial kingdom and he is waiting. This reveals to a large extent the probable feelings of Joseph Smith towards this entire kidnapping and this entire event. And the perspective they put on that is amazing. I'm going to, with you though, I'm actually going to expand on that perspective. Okay. Uh huh. Um, one of the things you guys discussed with Denson was that in the previous chapter, they discuss Joseph Smith Sr.'s initiation into Ontario Lodge in Canandaigua. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make a very, very good argument, uh, Method Evans that makes a very good argument that Joseph Smith Sr., was the Joseph Smith who was initiated, passed, and raised in 1818 and 1819 in that lodge. And I have all, I, in parallel with them, had done similar research. Mm -hmm. Okay. And my research um, largely dovetails with them. I found the same thing. I would say that the evidence presented in Method Infinite is the short case for okay. Joseph Smith Sr. becoming a Mason. Okay. There's a longer case to be made. And with the if you have any doubt that Joseph Smith Sr. was a Mason. You shouldn't after Method Infinite, but there is much more information. Um, both you and I, um, you were involved in that uh, Mormonism and the Western Mystery Tradition um, symposium that was held a couple years ago um, by um, Trevor Luke, right? Yes. Uh huh. I've been involved with a few of them. I wish he would do more. I need to kind of encourage him and maybe help him do more. But yes, uh huh, that's a good colloquial. So Cheryl gave a presentation at that. Yeah. And one of the things she went through was things that got cut from Method Infinite. Mm -hmm. And one of those was a detailed analysis of Joseph Smith Sr.'s dreams. And one of those if you kind of triangulate between what um, with what Lucy says and figure out the timeline of when that dream came, mm -hmm. it is a dream that expresses the worry, the stress of Joseph Smith Sr. becoming a Mason, having to do the memory work, and having to present in Lodge yeah. the catechism. Yeah. And when I saw that data, I was just like, 
holy crap. I've read that dream and I didn't realize what it was about. And it fits the context perfectly. So so even the dreams are, even the dreams are Masonically connected. It's not just Joseph Smith's visions, Junior's visions. It's Senior's visions that are Masonically connected. (laughs) Wow, that's deep. That's impressive. Um, In addition, my own research has shown that there are reasons why he was joining Canandaigua Lodge as opposed to Palmyra Lodge. Mm-hmm. Um, there are about four pieces of data that suggest there's reasons why it's our Joseph Smith and fit perfectly with it being him. Okay. And third, the timing of his initiation, passing, and raising is influenced by Joseph Smith Sr.'s magical thinking. The times in which he chooses to be initiated, initiated, passed, and raised Mm -hmm. are set to optimally connect with magical occurrence, with magically timing, calendrical timing. Mm -hmm. And so this, the, the Joseph Smith Sr. is undoubtedly the one that is raised in Ontario Lodge uh, is is initiated passed and raised in 1818 1819 in Ontario Lodge um, in Canandaigua now the reason I bring that up is if anybody doubts it there is other data that they're not sharing okay because it just got cut from the book because of weight and I have independently verified it through other means. Oh, you're gonna have you're, senior. You're gonna have a good argument with Dan Vogel then. Woohoo! <laughs> well, Dan Dan Vogel just made a, a simple mistake when he was analyzing it. Yeah, not he not a not a big deal, but uh, I'm gonna leave it to you then to convince him. <laughs> um, this well, I, I this will be fun. I think Cheryl's book presents enough. To make the case. No, it doesn't. Um, Not according to Vogel. I talked to him last night. That's one of the things he wants to talk about. So, so the cool thing is here, uh, George, is we're all gonna get involved in yet some more real fun, cool, detailed discussion back and forth because there is going to be an argument here. I'm really looking forward to this. So, yeah, it'll be all in, all in good conversation. Yes, yes, and we've got intelligent people. Yeah, fun, Um, fun stuff. One of the things, one of the things I bring up here is because. And this is something that even brings it more importantly. Uh-huh. Joseph Smith Sr. is initiated, passed, and raised in the lodge in Canandaigua. Uh-huh. Now, let me set the stage for you for just a second. Okay? Uh-huh. And connect it to Chapter 3, which is the William Morgan affair. Okay. okay. Nick Letursky has suggested that one of the possible reasons that Joseph Smith Sr. is rejected from Federal Lodge, I think number 15, is that he's too enthusiastically Masonic. Right? Okay. Explain that. Joseph Smith Sr. 
is the same as Joseph Smith Jr. He believes masonry is divine. Okay? Okay. That's why he so extensively tries to become a mason. Right. Most people would have yeah. been blackballed in federal lodge and said, screw you, right? Right. He doesn't. He waits the absolute minimum time he needs to be in New York and immediately applies. Applies to become to, a mason. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And he specifically chooses Canandaigua Lodge. Now, how far was that one from his home? Do you remember? Do you know? So remember when they're doing this, they don't, I'm going to, I have to be careful in the way I phrase this. Okay. They don't have a home. Oh. They have not purchased property yet. Oh, they are okay. living in Palmyra, but they do not own land. They do not own land. Okay. Uh huh. They are looking to buy land. All right. Okay. That's, that's fair. Guess mm -hmm. who the land broker, guess which lodge the land brokers Con in the area. Conondegua? Ten. That makes yep. sense. Now, that might be something Dan Vogel's not aware of. I don't know. It's unlikely that he's not aware of it, but it may not have the same significance for him as it does to you. That'll be interesting to see. Who, who, he is a professional cooper, right? Yes, yeah, he profession. is. Uh -huh. Remember that in 1818, 1819, the Erie Canal was a fairy tale. It had not been completed. It was called Clinton's Ditch. <laughs> and the, 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 the feeling amongst most people was that it was Clinton's Ditch and it would never be completed. It would never be done. This is a waste of time. <laughs> it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. And in fact, that is one of the reasons that he was drummed out of Masonic office in 1820. I hope I got my dates right there. I do too. Otherwise, um, you're in trouble, pal. <laughs> um, again, it's something I, I wrote up years ago. And, uh, okay. So, um, it, but it's why he was drummed out of Masonic office was because he was angering Canandaigua. Okay? Mm. Because what you don't understand is all the shipping in the region. Right went out of Canandaigua. Canandaigua hmm. is named Canandaigua because it's on Canandaigua Lake. Right. And Canandaigua Lake, if you travel south onto it, you can get river system and dump all of your contents on the East Coast. It was the main artery for shipping. Okay. So if they have not purchased property where do they want their farm, their future farm, to be close to? Vermont. They want it as close to Canandaigua as possible. That makes perfect sense. It really does. They never did get now, there, though, did they? When they buy the land, it is looking like the Erie Canal is going to be completed. Right. And so, but it's not, it's not, 
it's not a definite. Mm -hmm. So they plant their house, they buy land halfway between the Erie Canal and halfway, halfway between Lake Canandaigua and the Erie Canal. Yeah, interesting. That's what's going on. Okay. Now, let's bring it to the William Morgan affair. Most people have noted that William Morgan. Hey, can is... I interrupt you real briefly? Yeah. I just noticed. Yeah, I'm just. I noticed we're at an hour and forty minutes. Uh, could we? Could could I have you do a fifteen-minute discussion at this point on the William Morgan significance, and then we can pick it up on another podcast? Would that be okay? Because we normally sure, I'll do the best I can. Yeah, I know. I know you're like me. You love to just throw out the details, which is very necessary and interesting. But but we've got we probably ought to think about so trying me, to get close to wrapping up. Okay, okay, set let me, me up. Set you up for it. All right. Okay. So William Morgan lives in Bethlehemia. Okay, as is brought up in the book. It is very possible that during some of the early portion of either the planning or the writing that William Morgan was actually in Ontario County. Okay. You could have been around Joseph Smith. That's a little bit questionable data. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and they admit that. Okay. Right. But here's the importance. So who plans the kidnapping of William Morgan. That would have definitely been the president of the United States. <laughs> it is the people who plan the kidnapping of William Morgan are the lodge members, the worshipful master, the leadership yeah. of Joseph Smith seniors lodge. lodge oh yes he knows the kidnap and he would know he them yeah 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 i i okay. i see where you're going with this bombshell yeah. that's bombshell. heavy stuff so, wow so so this is our joseph smith senior who becomes a freemason who believes that masonry is divine and goes back even before the creation that God himself is a Mason and created the universe through Masonic principles that he taught to Adam. Yeah. And that Adam, Adam gave to all of his righteous sons who he made Royal Arch Masons. And that it was through their study of Masonry that they learned about the cosmos as they, as they studied astronomy. Yeah. And that they learned about God and that Adam was running these rituals. And where does this information come from? It comes from antiquities of Freemasonry. And he knows that Enoch is a Freemason and that he built a temple underground. That he, that Joseph Smith Sr. is looking for that gold plate. Yeah. And he knows that Abraham, because it's contained in antiquities of Freemasonry, was a Mason. And he knows that Joseph, the one who sees, the, the dreamer, 
that is both Joseph Smith <laughs> Sr. and Joseph Smith Jr., that they were Masons and that Moses was a Mason. Very good. And that organization that he believes is divine, that the leadership of that organization in his very lodge has kidnapped a man that he may even know. Yeah. And that he when wound up dead. Can you imagine what that meant to Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith that they knew the murderers, that they had sat in lodge with those murderers in this divine organization? Yeah, that's... That is what... That's is heavy. A context of the William Morgan affair in the Smith home. Holy And mackerel. that rocked their world. It is not just that all these things are going around in, around Joseph. It is that his brother, probably brothers, his brothers had sat in yeah. lodge with Using their, using their using their divine institution, they committed the singular most heinous crime they possibly could have. And that brings up the second half of that chapter. How many minutes do I have? Ah, uh, ten. Go ten. Okay. This brings up the second half of her chapter because then she introduces Lucinda Morgan and pulls oh, out yeah, this. Yeah phrase by Lucinda that Lucinda talks about the false masons who had got her husband that false mason it Cheryl Nick and Joe are not overreading that reference to false mason that's something Dan Vogel needs to get them yeah Interesting. They're not overreading that. Yeah, that's that's a legitimate interpretation and read, huh? That's it important. Is absolutely yeah. legitimate. All right, this is good. This because is really good. in antiquities of Freemasonry. It describes two traditions. The first tradition is that's the right. one that is divine Masonic tradition that I just laid out that is found in yeah. antiquities of Freemasonry that Joseph Smith and his family were reading. From the but angels to out. It explicates a secondary tradition. One that, uh, for my own reasons, I'm going to call the diabolical Mahomet tradition. Okay. And that Antiquities of Freemasonry lays out in detail, and you and I have both read it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You remember reading about... The fact that Antiquities of Freemasonry talks about the pre-existence. Absolutely. It talks about the that was electrifying. Yeah. And it talks about the angels that were Masonic and were performing Masonic rituals in heaven. In heaven. Yeah. And it also talks that and these angels were those who kept, according to Antiquities of Masonry, kept their first estate. Yeah. But it <laughs> also talks about the other group. Yes. <laughs> the bell. It does. Yeah. It included Satan. Yeah. And as we get into Antiquities of Freemasonry, as it talks about 
what Satan, the fallen Masonic angel, did. Mm-hmm. It talks about how he tried to ruin Adam's, Adam's teaching of the royal arch. Yep, yep. And it claims that he came directly to Cain and caused Cain to apostatize from masonry. <laughs> the story that is told in the Book of Mormon about the Mahonic tradition that starts and is explicated in the Book of Mormon and continues in the JST as he reworks the Adam story of Cain and Lamech. There you go. Uh That story of the Mahonic tradition comes from antiquities of Freemasonry. And so... What if you are a Joseph Smith senior and all of a sudden your lodge brethren had kidnapped a man and killed him? What is your interpretation of that? It is simply that in fact, not that masonry was all bad, but somewhere, somehow, his lodge had fallen under the Mahonic tradition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and had killed a man. Yeah. That is the only way Joseph could have interpreted it. It makes no yeah. sense yeah. that but... Joseph would have believed that his father and his brother and his uncle and his scribe had joined a bad group. An organization that was founded by and run by the devil. He would have never suggested that. Right. But what he would have suggested was that Masonic tradition, as he had read it and discussed it probably with his family, as it came from antiquities of Freemasonry, was that there was a negative idolatrous, Mahonic, diabolical tradition that had sought from time immemorial to ape the divine Masonic. So there and could that be is their interpretation. Right, right. Most likely of what happened. And so Lucinda Morgan, who he later marries, speaks correctly and in line with what Joseph said when she speaks of false masonry. Fantastically interesting. So there can be 15 minutes. There can be corruption in the divine institution, which in turn then needs to either be cleansed or restored. Yes. Now, all my life, all of my life, George, all of my life, George, I have been taught that that is Joseph Smith's unique, revealed, true doctrine that used to be had, but no one else ever thought about that, especially not in his no, day. No, it's Masonic tradition. 
and it's yet we we find it we find it right in his lap through his father and brother yes. who went through that horrible situation that is yes. that that has got to be one of the most mind opening uh shocking incredibly fascinating things i have ever experienced in this book and with your discussion the way you're presenting this material is you just you kind of go wow man what else have i been missing and that's why the book is so well worth getting to read yes and by the way if if i can share it with my audience please you guys order it through greg coford books amazon's not going to get it for a while apparently which is too bad but yeah all I can say is I have not gotten it. Well, Dan Vogel told me last night that he hasn't gotten his either. That's why he didn't want to come on the show. He said, I, I can't talk about it if I haven't read it. And I agreed with him. So we'll do another one. But So uh, that is quite, that that is, uh, that's just shocking. I, I, I mean, we've got a lot to think. Yeah, yeah, look at this. Wow, wow. So interesting. Just what mind blows. Are the viewers, did, did the viewers like that? The viewers are ranting and raving about it. Except this one says that it was Biden <laughs> being, being a smart Aleck. Time traveling. Time No, yeah. Where is this written? Where is this written? It's in the book, but it's also research that George has been doing that he is finding in a book that is, I've mentioned this, it's available online for free, George Oliver's Antiquities of Freemasonry. You can go find that online. Uh, and so this is the this is the information that both Method Infinite and George is kindly sharing with us some of his information and research that is not in Method Infinite. He has a more fuller attack. Building, building, He's uh, building on it. Time for this. There you go. They were already you stripping back the book. It, it, there was no way they could have done it. Yeah, I I know. Yeah, right. Yeah, Master Mahon. My my viewer got it. T O G. Yes, Master Mahon in the Pearl of Great Price. Also, the Joseph Smith translation. Also now, in Freemasonry. Yeah, just, I, it's amazing. I, I'm I'm borrowing the Mahon from Joseph. Uh, sure, George sure. Oliver doesn't use that word. Oh, he oh, uses I see. Idolatrous okay. masonry, and in his later publications, he describes it as spurious masonry. Spurious, yeah, and that 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 okay. doesn't work for most Mormon readers, right? And so I've adopted Joseph's term. Oh, okay, all right. It's Mahan. all it's all good. Yeah, yeah, it's the same same thing. Another another I, one of my readers. I, I, I just don't want I don't want them jumping in and saying it doesn't say Mahonic. Um, right, right. I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm Debbie, Debbie, Joe, for, for Mormon's understanding. Sure, Debbie Joe also says I am totally mind blown. She really enjoyed this. Um, I I think the group has really uh, thoroughly enjoyed this uh, discussion, and I am going to have you back. Now, listen, I I am in the process of upgrading my technology and my own knowledge of the technology, so the time will come, I promise, where we will be able to be on screen together. Uh, side by side. Uh, in the meantime, if I can't do that here pretty, and I'm going to try like crazy to do that pretty quick, um, I will I will invite you back on the show, and we will 
pick this back up. I'm really excited for you to get the book and just read the whole book. And then we can do many sessions together, George. I think that would be a delight because your knowledge is as so extensive as uh, these guys and 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 we are all kind of been researching together for the last 20 years and you've gone off into your your area and you have an area of expertise that just meshes so well i'm kind of working on some things that kind of mesh pretty well so we have a lot of good future materials we can share with our audience so well and i'd love for you when i get this stuff written up um i mean i we we participated both of us in a conversation on mormon discussions where i go into some of this and show some of the evidence yes um it uh, was actually with in a discussion with a Mormon Mason who didn't believe there was a connection. Yes, a that, fascinating that was incredible. Yes, it was. Yeah, I remember that. That that Mormon Mason, my suspicion is he was a newly raised master. I might be wrong about that, but he just, it was amazing that he didn't, uh, yeah, he just didn't believe it. And then the the amazing thing, the other cool thing is when you presented him with that information, he immediately downloaded the link and began reading and he saw and he said, ah, okay, I need to rethink some things. That's a very healthy mindset. Now here's a Mason who is told we have to do a memorized ritual somewhat and we have to do it this way and that way and all that and he's not rigid here is a mormon a mormon who is endowed who is not so rigid with the mormon orthodoxy that this man couldn't adapt to the new evidence this is the kind of people that we want to become you must remain flexible or you can really shatter like glass just like joseph smith complained about <laughs> with those early yes. Mormons. So, yeah. So thank you so much for coming on my show. I hope that I know the audience enjoyed it. Uh, and thank you audience for giving so many likes and uh, welcoming George. Uh, we will get back together and do more of this without question. So I'd I, love, I'd love to come back when you get to, um, as you begin to continue to work through this, I'd love to come back. We can talk about Mormon, the, the chapter on Mormon Masonic Midrash. Oh, yes. And I'd love to get in it um, after, of course, you have a conversation with Cheryl um, about the book of Abraham. Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. In fact, I'm going to talk to Cheryl tonight. I may very well contact you and we'll do one uh, next weekend. That would be fun. That would be enjoyable. It. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right, you guys. Thank you for uh, all of your support and help and love. I appreciate absolutely every blasted one of you, no matter who you are, where you are, or what you are. And I will catch up with you tonight, uh, 8 o'clock. I'll be finishing my interview with Cheryl, and then we'll take it from there into next week and see what happens. So thanks, everybody, for showing up. I'll see you tonight at 8 o'clock. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, baby. I got to do that one. <laughs>